In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Direct, O Lord, all our actions by thy holy inspirations and carry them on by thy gracious assistance. So that every prayer and work of ours may begin from thee and by the behalf of thee through Christ, our Lord. Amen. Seed of wisdom, pray, pray for us. us. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, so the topic of this uh, conference is uh, why should you remain Catholic? And there's, uh, or why be Catholic is ultimately the, the title. And it's not an apologetic for the Catholic faith. What I want to do is I'm just going to presume certain things. So if a person has faith, there's just going to be certain things that you can presume from that. And then from there, you, ha- you can logically deduce, well, this is pretty much it. Okay. So, um, and some of these things, uh, obviously true to be a Catholic, there's a certain uh, amount of faith that is required just to give assent to those things, regardless of how logical, logical a lot of it is, you still have to have faith to see the truth of the propositions. Because you can have a system that is absolutely coherent within its parts and not be true. So um, it really comes down to, are the, are the foundational propositions, which are basically the parts of the creed, are they the foundational propositions, are they true? If they are, then you know, the whole logical structure follows from that. Okay, so that's the, and that's actually one of the real problems in the church that's been in the last 40 years is that whole logical incoherence of things that are being proposed is breaking down because, you know, some guy, he wants contraception. Well, if you don't, if you, if you want contraception, then that means that, you know, the infallibility of the church is open to question because now its, its teachings have changed and then once that happens and then it's all gone, right? So, um, but where I want to start with that is this. If you look and uh, you can demonstrate, you can demonstrate that God exists through the natural light of reason. So let me just give you a quick short one. So um, it is clear and evident to the senses that all things are in motion. Obviously, you see things moving around. I'm moving around as you're watching me. Okay, so and uh, that and so they're based on that. Then the print, so that's something that's self-evident. Right? It's self-evident. Things are in motion. You know, people say, I don't know. Is he there or not? Well, he's standing right in front of you. Well, is he there? You, 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 if someone did that, you'd say, okay, it's time for them to be given some type of psychotropic drug, right? Okay. So, uh, so the St. Thomas says that when it comes to our senses and the, and the validity of what they tell us, generally speaking, it's self-evident that what they're telling us is true. Okay. So, the, uh, and that basically it's through the senses that we're put in contact with reality. That's going to be a key notion, that contact with reality. So, uh, that, uh, so, and then there's the principle of uh, motion, that which is moved is moved by another, um, and also the principle of sufficient reason. The, the motion of a thing or the existence of a thing is accountable either in itself or in another. In other words, everything that exists has to have a sufficient reason to account for why it exists. And in, in, um, it's either in itself, as in the case of God, or it's in another. Okay, so in relationship to motion, so... Things are in motion, that which is moved is moved by another. You can't have what they call an infinite regress. You can't go on infinitely where there's nothing, you never get to anything that starts the whole process in motion. Because if you never get to something that starts the whole process in motion, then there shouldn't be any motion at all. Okay, so there has to, you have to get to some point where there's one thing that is unmoved that starts everything in motion and that we call God, right? So, um, because he's unmoved. Okay, so that's, that's the, one of the arguments. And it, it takes a lot of philosophical analysis to see all the proofs of all those propositions. Okay, so we know that God can exist through the, purely through the natural light of reason. The First Vatican Council teaches us that. To go from that 
to saying something like, Jesus Christ is the Son of God incarnate, is a different kind of an animal. Because, or to actually know, what is God thinking? You know, when actually there's some, we know, we actually know, we actually know a great deal about what God thinks. Most people think he's this inaccessible thing that we can't see out there. Well, if everything that exists, if everything that exists is being caused, maintained in its existence by God, that means that we can actually know what God's thinking just by looking at things. He's thinking about the tables, the chairs, us. You know, obviously, he only has one thought, which is himself, and seeing within himself, he sees the totality of everything he's causing. But, this, we, you know, people say, well, what is God thinking? We'll just look at reality. There you go. Okay. Okay, so that all being said. So, but there are certain aspects about God that when he acts upon something, okay, so we got this thing, and everything is a combination of something that has a nature or an essence, and that essence is brought into existence. So it's a combination of essence and existence. But existence is the same in everything. And that means that every time God causes, by the way, God's name is I am who am. Look like this one. I am is existence. Who am is essence. Which means what? It's in his very essence to exist. Okay. He actually revealed his nature in that respect. Okay. So his very nature is existence. Okay. So he causes these things to exist. And existence, since it's, it's the same in each thing in a certain sense, in that respect, God always acts as a unified cause. Why am I going into this? And by unified cause, I mean anytime something comes out of God, there's always existence that's coming into, existence is occurring in some way. And it's unified in the sense that we believe that there's three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but they all act externally as a single cause. So you can't discern that there's a Trinity sufficiently well enough just in nature, just in the created reality. Okay. So what does this actually mean then about knowing that God's triune? Okay, so... And then we'll get to the whole Catholic part here after that. Well, if we are to know what's going on in the interior life of God, what's, you know, what's, what's going on inside of God, what's he thinking, what's his will, what's his plans, etc. He, we, because the created order doesn't reveal enough about God, I mean, it reveals that he exists, it reveals certain of his attributes, like that he's omnipotent, omniscient, etc. You can reason to all those. Just read the Summa Contra Gentiles of St. Thomas. He shows how you can start with God's existence and then proceed to all these other things. But uh, obviously that's too far afield for our discussion. But even though you can know a lot about God, there's certain things you can't know about him unless he reveals it. Which means what? Either one of two things is the case historically. Either God did not reveal things about himself and his plans and his intentions, or he did. This is just a logical uh, possibility, right? Either he did or he didn't, one of the two. If he did not reveal what's going on internally in him, then you basically default to um, the Freemasonic position 
which is one religion is as good as another. We ultimately can't know anything about God. And that, um, so whatever one guy, however one guy wants to worship is just as good as the next, right? Whereas if God did reveal something about himself, then that's not the case. That means, so if, if God didn't reveal, it's catch as catch can. You know, whoever comes up with the best idea, well, isn't that nice? Okay. But when it comes to the, if he did reveal something about himself, then this revelation, in order for it to be given to men and to be propagated from generation to generation, it has to come in a very specific mode. And by mode, we mean it has to be done in a very specific way. And that's this. Uh, God cannot reveal things to an individual purely, purely internally with the expectation that it would apply to all men and that all would believe it. Because, why? Human beings are inherently untrustworthy. And as a result, the human beings cannot be the primary uh, mode by which something is revealed. So what does this mean? It means, and the, then the question comes, well, what about angels revealing? This is what you know, the Mormons believe. Well, here's the problem with that. Demons can falsify being an angel of light. So you can never prove, when you say an angel reveals, you can never prove that that's actually what, you know, you, you can never have that same degree of certitude unless it rests upon something which God himself has to reveal it, and he has to reveal it in objective reality, something which is accessible to all men, which basically means what? The senses. So if you actually look, so what does he do on Mount Sinai? Well, Moses goes up, God starts talking to him, reveals the Ten Commandments, and that's the first objective revelation that we have, right? And then God reveals it to God, uh, many of the laws and stuff like that, God reveals to, uh, to Moses because as human beings, we're, let's just admit it, we're all just stupid. And so when it comes to God, we are, if we're going to worship God according to our own designs, you're going to have people standing in front of trees, you know, tapping on it and doing la 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 That's what you're going to get as human beings, because we're just that dumb. So if we're going to worship God in a way that is properly ordered to him and not through some, to some weird object, or it's properly ordered to him in a way that actually pleases him because it's rightly ordered, he has to reveal it. That's why God came down, uh, revealed the Ten Commandments, that was the basic natural law, and then he revealed to Moses, this is how you're supposed to worship me. He was very precise and very detailed in exactly how that's to be done. If God doesn't do that, then we're back to the, old, the problem. It's catch as catch can. It's whoever comes up with the best idea or whatever. Anybody can just do it any way they want. Okay. So the objective reality, the objective reality is something that everybody can have access to. So God reveals through Moses. So that's the first revelation of the Old Testament. Then the second revelation is done by Jesus Christ. That is God himself. And the, how, does we, how do we know that the revelation is from God himself? Is because, and it's the same actual way in which we know in the Old Testament, which is the content that is uh, revealed, and then it's backed up by something that is beyond and above 
anything on the natural order, whether angelic or otherwise. So you got the burning bush, that was one of the few signs, etc. And then there's several miracles that occur in relationship to the, um, to the Jews when they're leaving Egypt, etc. So you've got that going on there. And then what does Christ do? Christ shows he's God. Christ shows he's God because every single time he uh, attempted to perform a miracle, it happened. There was never an instance where he failed to pull off what he was doing. Okay. Um, if, if, the, if the gospel accounts are correct. Okay, so, that which they are, by the way. So, the, uh, and part we know about that, all the internal cohesion of them and all this stuff. Okay, so, that being the case, Christ himself comes and reveals, you know, okay, this is the objective reality of the thing. Okay, all authority comes from God. We have an innate sense, I mentioned it uh, earlier before the conference, you know, that you know, no human being has a right to take the life of another human being. If you do, have to because of self-defense. It's on the state. It's because you're acting as an agent of the state. Okay, in relationship to uh, um, individuals, one individual does not have the power or right to bind another person in the form of conscience of themselves. They don't have that authority. You can't tell me what to do. We all know that. This guy can't. He can't tell me what to do. The only one time we tell him, okay, you can tell me what to do, is if what? If there's authority structure, and that authority structure has to come from God, ultimately. It's God alone who can bind people in the form of conscience. Only God. Now, that means that God can then convey that power in a limited way, and we know that he does that, or that authority. And the way we know he does that is uh, through two ways. One, through the natural law. So... And this is what we were talking about in relationship to children. Children naturally know that they're supposed to obey their parents. So the natural law, because God creates human nature and in that structures it so that we behave a certain way, he designed that and so he's the author of it. And therefore, the natural law determines that, you know, certain people have certain authority. So the father has head of the household, etc. So this is, we know this through the natural law. And you can know that just through the natural line of reason. But then there's what we call the divine positive law. And that is, that is an additional and above and beyond the natural law. God comes down and reveals an objective reality. This is what my will is, and this is who has the authority. So that's what happened when the apostles were... Um, uh, so it, when the apostles, right before Christ ascended, he said, go, therefore, and baptize all nations. The general consensus of the theologians is, is it was at that time that there was the conveyance of jurisdiction to the uh, apostles, and then they pass it from generation to generation. And how do we know that? Because it's right in Scripture. We see that, that they're actually making bishops and priests in Scripture, okay, deacons, etc. Okay, so that being said, what this means is, is that... Uh, when it ultimately boils down to it, human beings are imperfect. And there's a principle. You cannot give what you don't have. It's called the principle of sufficient reason. If I'm not perfect, I can't make myself perfect. And in relationship to, uh, in relationship to this, in relationship to God, if I am going to attain some state after I'm dead that is above and beyond what I have in this life, the, and it's, it's, it's above and beyond, it's beyond my natural capacities. I actually have to have some other agency that lifts me up to that level. Okay, and that ultimately is going to be God. Because only God can lift us up to the point where we can see him, 
where we can be perfect because only God, all perfection comes from God. Even the angels that are perfect are perfect because God caused them to be perfect. So in relationship to us, the only way we're going to attain this perfection in the next life is God has to be the cause of it. So, and we call that salvation because right now we're in a state of imperfection. We commit sins. We, these are defects. They're disorders, etc. because they violate the natural law and divine puzzle. We just don't behave the way we're supposed to. In fact, Plato talks about it. Aristotle talks about it. He's like, there's something wrong with man. You know, he's reasonable, has reason. He knows what's virtuous and he does it. And yet he's doing these weird things. It was kind of like this quasi-expression of St. Paul, right? Um, and it's, Aristotle's a fascinating character because he, he got to the point where he said, it seems that the greatest level of happiness that a human being could have is to have a never-ending contemplation of the unmoved mover. He arrived at that purely on the basis of natural light of reason, which basically means what? That he recognized that, that he didn't have a concept of the beatific vision, he was just saying that it would seem if you could just always contemplate this, this would be that. Because it's the highest object of the highest faculty. They're giving you the highest delight, etc. So he said that would, be the, that would be it. But then he says, but such a state is too high for man. Because of our composite nature, we have to work, etc. And so he said, all you can do is contemplate as much as you can and then spend the rest of the time developing virtue. So uh, what does this ultimately mean? It means that to have this never-ending contemplation to be perfectly happy, which we have a desire to be, um, which this, uh, this perfect happiness, there's a natural desire for happiness, but it falls short of God himself. Basically what it does is it helps us to basically realize or to contemplate God to the degree that we can based on our own natural abilities. But then there is what they call an elicited desire for to see God face to face, and that comes by grace. So God gives us grace. I want to see God. I want to see him. Right? Okay. So that being the case, in order to achieve that, given our state of sin, in order to see him face to face, there's all sorts of things. You have to be in a state of perfection. So in order to achieve that, God has to be the cause, and we call that salvation. That's what that is, salvation. Being taken out of our state of sinfulness and being brought to a state of no more sin, having perfect rectitude of will and intellect, and seeing him face to face. That is something that's above and beyond even angelic nature. So it's only something that God can cause. So what does this mean? If God is the only cause that can bring that about, then we're back to this, it's one or the other. Either he revealed to us how that is to be the case and how we're supposed to do that, or he didn't. And if he didn't do it, well, then we're back to this, whatever you think is fine, what I think is fine, etc. Or, if he did reveal it, then we have to follow the prescriptions that he determined in order to get back to God. It's just a logical argument, right? Now, according to the revelation, we know that um, God chose 12 apostles, and then right before he ascended into heaven, he conveyed to them jurisdiction, which means what? The authority, and they're like, go and teach all nations, which means what? Only the apostles, from what we can gather from all, if you study all the other manuscripts of all other religions, none of them have ever made the claim that God conveyed on them directly the right to proselytize. And that God conveyed on them the right to govern and to rule, which is what jurisdiction is. Go and teach all nations, 
right? Which means what? In order to teach, you have to govern, etc. So there's that whole thing. I don't want to unpack all that. But the point being is, is that he gave that to the apostles, and then we know it's passed on, and so it goes from successor to successor down to the present day. So what does this mean concretely? Well, if you're going to go from the time of revelation to us today, if we are going to be saved, we have to follow this prescription that he he set up. And if he set it up, we have to make sure that this revelation passes intact without any of the essential elements ever being modified or changed because once we do that, we don't know the means. We're off already. And so it has to come down intact. And this is basically where the infallibility of the church is involved. Without infallibility, it is impossible to be saved. It's just impossible. Okay, that just follows logically. Now, that all being said, what is this? Okay, so what does this all mean? Why should I be Catholic? Because the Catholic Church is the only one that's, that, by appearance, at least fulfills this prescription. It's the only one. You look at all the other religions. You know, Muhammad, it was a, you know, Muhammad is God's prophet. Well, that's Muhammad, right? He's not claiming to be God. He didn't back it up with miracles, and he didn't do it, you know, etc. So, in other words, he didn't back it up with things that we can be certain that only God can do these things. He might have done stuff that demons could do, but he didn't back it up with other things. You know, and it's, it's obviously not Buddha, and it's obviously not, you know, a variety of other different people who started their own religions, etc. So it has to ultimately come from God to us today. So, in order for us to be saved, in order to get here, we have to be part of that religion, which basically um, contains the means and the knowledge necessary in order to get back to God. That's the only way we can do it. To our knowledge, there's only one religion that can prove that it actually has that. All other religions don't have that. And how do we know that? Because, take for example, many of the Protestant sects, it's all based on what one guy tends to think, or his revelations, or whatever he tends to think. Well, that's fine if you've got this going on. And that's really what it boils down to, is that they don't believe in any authority structure or infallibility that maintains it even to today. And so as a result, God reveals to everybody in privately and individually. And that's why I started out with, you can't start from that. And how do we know that? Because one guy is going to contradict the other guy. God told me X. Well, God told me non-X. Okay, now where are we? Right? So it has to be something that, what, we can go back, look at objective reality and say, well, this is what we know. And you can actually do this. You can actually go and study the, uh, the manuscripts and monuments of the church, the tradition of the church, and see where this thing actually came from. Okay. So then you all, so if this is the only, if, so this basically means that because the Catholic Church is the only one that has, has this process, the Catholic Church therefore is the only divinely established means of salvation. That's what it means. So if you want, if you want to be saved, this is what you got to do. Okay. Now, some people just say, well, I don't think there were anything. I think we're just a conglomeration of molecules. Well, that's fine. But in the end, I think that uh, you'll find out differently, obviously. And there's arguments even against that. But if, if a person has any seriousness about ultimately being happy and you want perfect happiness, this is, the, this is the only means. So what about people who are part of other religions? Can they be saved? The answer is yes, they can but only by means of the one that Christ set up. 
What that means is, is that any non-Catholic that is saved, which some of them are, not a lot. In fact, I'll talk about that in a minute. They're saved by means of the Catholic Church. It doesn't mean that they're a, a visible member of it, but it means that it comes to the instrumentality of the Church. Okay. The second part of it is, is it's very rare that they are. Pius IX condemned the proposition that you can have reasonable hope in the salvation of non-Catholics. He condemned that proposition. What's reasonable hope? Pretty good idea. It's probably pretty sure this guy made it to heaven, right? So, for example, when you see, um, uh, you know, somebody who uh, is, they're, they're dying, right, and they come, the priest comes, and they confess their sins to the priest, the priest, uh, let me give you an example, a close friend of mine, when his wife was dying, you know, the priest is there, he, um, <clears throat> he's, he's already anointed her, but he, just before she dies, he's, he was going to give her absolution one more time, and he said to her, Penny, are you sorry for all the sins of your past life? Her dying word was, absolutely. She was dead. Mm. That's perfect manifestation. I mean, I don't know how it gets any better than that, of final penitence, right? And so, because she received the sacraments, and because she uh, expressed final penitence on the end <coughs> for her sinfulness against God, um, then we know, we, then we have... Pretty good certitude, this person made it happen. That's reasonable hope. She made it, right? Okay. Whereas the other people, if they don't have those particular means, it's much harder for them and it's much less likely for them to actually get into heaven. Um, the other side of it is, too, is, is by that is of the means, not just the time of the deathbed, but to, throughout one's life, the church has a variety of different means to gain the grace to start perfecting yourself now and to start leading a life that's in congruity with the sacraments or in congruity with the um, Ten Commandments, sorry, that's in congruity with that. And so the church has a much richer means by which that is possible. And so it again contributes to reasonable hope and that we'll be saved. It is the common opinion of theologians that, um, I've been researching this just recently, it's the common opinion of theologians, I think it's census uh, communis, that God gives everybody sufficient grace to be saved. And that's based partly on the all are called but few are uh, chosen, right? So the, um, or many, but the, the point being is, is that the, the, there's a general impression or a preposition by most theologians that everybody gets sufficient grace to be saved. That doesn't mean everybody's saved. In fact, uh, the number of people being saved um, by the, again, the uh, communis, uh, sen, uh, sorry, the census communis is, or satensic communis, is, is that the fact that uh, less than a majority of the people are saved. In fact, few people are saved. So the number of people saved is relatively few if you look at the general number. That's the kind of the general consensus. There's some other people that hold something else. Um, and so there, that's, why we, that's why you'll read technical journals and they'll say, well, we don't, it's not de fide, and it's not satensit fide proxima, but it, tends, it looks like it's this. Okay, So that's why they tend to talk that way. That all being said, um, that means that it, once you step outside the Catholic Church, your chances of being saved go down. And I'm not just saying that because we're in the church, and look at us, aren't we privileged? It's actually not the case. Actually, there's a certain humility because you only stay in the church if God's giving you the grace. It's not, don't take the credit for it. It's him doing that. Okay. So uh, that all being said, 
This is one of the reasons why you actually want, this is why it's important to remain Catholic and to practice the Catholic faith because it's the only way that we're going to get to heaven just based on objective criteria. Do Protestants, are Protestants saved? Yes. Are non-Catholics saved? Yes. But that's why the, the, the way they used to say is that it was extraordinary. It was rare. That's why the pious sense is that, you know, you can't have reasonable hope in the salvation of Catholic Catholics. They didn't say you couldn't have any hope because there's some that are saved. But you can't have reasonable hope in the sense of, we're pretty sure this guy got saved. Okay. Any questions? So, so someone who is a non-Catholic would presumably have a more heroic journey to, to get to heaven because it, because it would be more there would be more obstacles or there would be it would be harder to get harder. there yeah but not necessarily on their side but on the side of the grace given okay yeah and the other the other point is all you know when 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 you mention you know, the exact percentage of people that are, that are saved, you know, is it, is it 5%, is it 25%, is it 50%? Yeah, we ultimately, ultimately don't know. It doesn't really matter, though, because it's one, it's one person, it's you. That you should be worrying about. That you're worrying about. It's that's not right. everybody else. It's just, yeah. it's just you. Yeah, that's right. Well, your family, but, but you, all you can do with your family is... Pray for them. Pray for them and show them, you know, show them all the... Yeah, I think that the real difficulty today is um, on the opposite extreme. Uh, the opposite extreme meaning that everybody's saved or, you know, a majority of people will be saved. And what happens with that is then people say, oh, then it's not that difficult. I don't have to worry about it. Or, they, you know, they don't think that there's certain requirements that I have to meet in order to be saved. You know, ultimately we're saved by sanctifying grace in us, but that's God who makes that possible and we have to cooperate with that. But I think that the, and that's, I think, the real danger that you're seeing out there, you know, that in the end, all, you know, dare we hope that all men be saved? Well, no, we better not dare that because it's just heretical and it's already been condemned, you know, et cetera. So um, I think that's the more opposite extreme that we're seeing today. Well, even Christ said that, you know, it was, it was easier for a camel. Or for a rich man, for a to, rich get, man to go through the... Yeah, it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man. And the eye of the needle, says, you know, as you know, it's that narrow door that you, you can get him through there, but it's a lot of work. So, yes. This is probably a talk in and of itself, but what about the Orthodox religion and, and how do they fit in in salvation as far as uh, not being Catholic, but yet being closer to being Catholic than Protestants and yet not having the primacy of Peter? Yeah, so... Uh, this is, uh, okay, let me just back up just a little bit. So, what would you think if you had a car and I stole your car and I lived across the street from you and stuck it in my uh, driveway and said, hey, Rick, what do you think of my car? Isn't that a great car? Look, I got, I got a car. Look at my car. What would be your reaction? crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly what's going on with religions who have elements of sanctification. Because God gave all the elements of sanctification to the apostles and to the church. And the fact that these other religions started using them independently of the church is theft, spiritual theft, basically. And so recently today they're talking about, isn't it wonderful that the, the Orthodox have this and the Protestants have that? And they said, no, it's not. It's theft. It really belongs to all the elements of sanctification the church has always taught is actually under the authority of the, um, the bishops. 
And so every time someone's baptized outside the church or gets married outside the church uh, sacramentally or, um, you know, employs, like says, mass outside the church, um, every time that happens, God is gravely offended because usurpation has happened in relationship to the bishops. So in relationship to the Orthodox, they have valid sacraments. So they have the, they have the valid sacraments. Um, and it, I, I personally do not believe it was helpful that Paul VI extended them jurisdiction for their confessions. I think that was a mistake for a variety of different reasons. Um, and part of that has to do with uh, you really should not normalize the validity of sacraments outside the church. You just shouldn't do that. So they have that. So if you look at the, if you look at, if, you know, and we know that when Christ, God established that, that because he's the cause, remember how I tell you he acts as unified cause? So everything that God causes, only God can maintain perfect unity in a thing. Mm-hmm. So there's one uh, holy and Catholic and apostolic, right? So, on, on the side of the uh, Orthodox, they lack the principle of unity because uh, the First Vatican Council said that the principle of unity, not a principle of unity, and here's a slight switch, which they, they it was a little underhanded thing they pulled at Vatican II and nobody noticed. And that was this. At Vatican I, it was formally defined that the Papacy, the office of the papacy, the papacy is the principle of unity. If you're not in union with the Pope, you're not in the church, period. Okay. So that is the principle. So this is, this is the principle. But there are other there are principles that, um, so for example, there are other principles like having the same faith is a principle of unity, but it's not the principle. So you can have various principles of unity, but if you don't have the one principle of unity, you don't have true unity. These other ones, it's more of, okay, once you got the, then you have to have all the us, so to speak. Okay. And so the Orthodox, they don't have the principle of unity. They have some of the principles of unity, but not all of them. But even that, even in relationship to the faith, there's stuff that, like, you can, your first marriage, if it doesn't work out, they'll kind of turn a blind eye and you get married a second time. I mean, this is all nonsense, right? So then the other one is holy, and these are that the, 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 the church will always be sanctified. The, the doctrine is holy, it sanctifies its people, and its finality is people's holiness. Okay, that's what it's, what it's designed for. And so there are elements of sanctification that are given to the church. And so some of these people have them, but because they don't have the principle of unity, they're out, you're using these things outside what God had intended. Because he established, you know, upon this rock I will build my church. And you even know that the other apostles know that Peter is the guy who makes the decisions. How do we know that? Two instances. When John and Peter run to the, um, to the cave, to the, where Christ was buried <clears throat> when he died, John got there first, and then, uh, but he stood outside knowing it wasn't his place, and then Peter went in and checked it out. Okay. The other part of it is, is that when it came to the question of circumcision, um, uh, Paul knew that it wasn't his place to make the determination. He went and talked to Peter and convinced Peter, you have to change this. And then once Peter said it, the question was over. Okay. So we know that that, that that's how that all, that structure works. And we know that that was from the beginning and it just passed on. Okay. The second is, of course, a Catholic is that it's universal. So, it's anybody of any, of any race can be a Catholic. Okay. 
And then the apostolic is two forward. Two forward. The apostolic is primarily apostolic, primarily apostolic succession. So you have the, the passing on of, of the, uh, the office of bishop from generation to generation. In the Vatican, in their archives, is an actual document that shows how every single bishop today can be physically traced back to a particular apostle. So we, ha- we actually have that documentation. In fact, when a bishop is consecrated by a bishop, when he goes to Rome, he's given a document and told which apostle their succession is traced back to. Yeah. Okay. So, or at least they used to. I don't know if they still do. Okay. But so that means so it's the order is passed on from generation to generation. But then also this authority that Christ gave, go and teach all nations, was passed on from generation to generation. And that's why I always tell people that the only religion that has any religious rights in any society is the Catholic Church. All the other ones are to be tolerated, right? And you tolerate the principles of toleration. That's a whole conference in itself. But the other ones don't have any rights because it wasn't conceded to them by God in relationship to this. But the Orthodox, when it comes to the apostolic part of it, they have what they call material succession of apostolicity, which basically means what? They have valid orders. It goes from generation to generation. So they're all val- their bishops are valid, their priests are valid, right? But when it comes to formal succession, that is, they don't have jurisdiction that's passed on from generation to generation. And so as a result of that, they don't, have, they don't have the principle of unity. They don't, have, um, the, the, they don't truly have apostolicity because they don't have this formal succession. There's some question about their universality, but I think that one could be easily argued. Um, and then as far as the holiness goes, um, some of their doctrine isn't holy. So technically speaking, some authors assert that the Catholic Church is the only one that has all of these. No other religion has any of them in the proper sense. So, so I just tells you about the Orthodox. So what did they do at Vatican II? What they did at Vatican II is, is they shifted the principle of unity from the papacy to apostolicity. If you have apostolic succession, you are part of this Church of Christ, which is called the branch theory. And the branch theory was started by Protestants. They didn't like the fact that the Catholic Church was claiming it was the only true church. And so what they did is they came up with this idea that, well, there's this one church of Christ. Does this sound familiar? One church of Christ of which there are different branches like the Catholic and uh, the Orthodox. And uh, at that time, when they came up with this theory, it was the Anglicans. Those are the only ones that they were willing to extend it to. Okay, and now it's pretty much everybody. But what this does is this shifts, and so when, the, when this actually got uh, condemned and addressed in a variety of different ways by popes and by magisterial documents and saints and authors and stuff, but what ends up happening, and so what they did though is they, they shifted it from the papacy, the principle, you're not part of this church that Christ established unless you're part of the papacy. That's essentially what Vatican I says. That gets collapsed into, if you have apostolic succession, you're part of the church that Christ established. That is why they permit intercommunion with the Orthodox and with High Anglicans. They were talking about it at High Anglicans, but at least with the Orthodox. So, yes? So, heretics, 
who do not have or do or do not agree with absolutely everything the church is to teach, and they have been in touch with the papacy and the Vatican, and they keep getting the answer that your teaching is not of the Catholic. This is not the right teaching. We are we are refusing right. to to you know accept your right. belief, you know about baptism. Okay, are they automatically excommunicated? What are they? Well, they were never part of the church. So they're... Well, okay, so wait a minute. I have to stop with that. Okay, a distinction has to be made. Whenever you are baptized, what's infused into your intellect at the time of your baptism is Catholic faith, even if it's done in a Protestant ceremony. Through malformation, that may get corrupted if they make a formal act of heresy. Once they make a formal act of heresy or commit something that's morally sinful, they lose their state of grace. But it's theoretically possible for a Protestant to not make a formal act of heresy because he may never come to really understand what the church teaches and then make a formal rejection of it. That's rare, I think. Um, the theologians talk a lot about, well, where's the threshold on that? You know, how much do you have to know and how much do you have to believe it, etc. But that's the general principles. So... Um, but they are not part of the visible part of the church. That's one of its attributes, that the church is visible. They're not visible members of the church, but they can actually be members of the church by virtue of being in the state of grace. Because if they're in the state of grace, they're part of the communion of saints, and if that, that means that they're part of the church, because the communion of saints only exists in the Catholic church, everybody in heaven is a Catholic. Even the Protestants in this life become Catholics. Right. The second... Um, uh, and as I mentioned before, all demons are Catholics. I mean, just, the way they talk and think is entirely Catholic, which I don't want to say that too much because then people are like, I knew there was something wrong with those Catholics. They're diabolic. Okay, but, anyway. Uh, but anyway, so the, um, but, uh, so where was I? Sorry, got distracted. Everyone's Catholic. Yeah, so everybody in heaven is actually Catholic. So, but if you make a formal act of heresy, you corrupt the virtue of faith, you lose your state, state of sanctified grace, and your connection to the church is severed. And at that point, the only way you can get back into the church um, is basically by entry into it, formally. Um, I suppose that you, a person might, I don't, I've never heard any theologians argue that there could be some way in which a person would, unless you made like a perfect act of contrition, but how many Protestants even know what that is? God could give them a grace to do so, but it would be so rare to, to actually occur. Yeah. So Catholic heretics are considered Protestants. No. What are Catholic heretics, like Catholic well, groups? You know, that's a very good question. Okay, that's, uh, that's something that really does need to be addressed because there's so much confusion about this today. So, you know, you have somebody... Uh, a particular priest, I'm not going to name his name because I don't want to get in trouble by some bishop who's a heretic, but, but he, he's a priest who goes around promoting homosexual lifestyle. Everybody knows who this guy is, right? Okay. And the stuff he proposes is absolutely heretical. And you're seeing priests all the time saying stuff that's just completely heretical. So the church, uh, in order to be a heretic... Um, a formal heretic, so we'll make that distinction a material heretic. So a formal heretic 
So let's do this material heretic. Material, uh, human, uh, material heretic is someone who in his intellect assents to a teaching or an idea without uh, fully knowing what he's giving assent to. That it's not true, in other words. So you see this a lot of times with, um, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the common ones that you, you see is people thinking that, well, you know, everybody's going to get saved or all these people get saved or getting saved is so easy, etc. right? And that's just not true. So you've got that kind of a, a problem going on. Or there's a lot of material, or uh, um, sorry, moral heretics, people who believe contraception is okay, that abortion is okay, that you can fornicate and that's okay, etc. So there's a lot of people who believe that, that there's nothing wrong with this stuff, right? So this material heresy is basically what we call error. They're in error, which means they don't really understand what they're thinking and or they haven't fully given consent to it yet. So <clears throat> it requires two things. Error is that there's something on the side of the intellect, but it's not full or partial. It can be full or partial. They might fully understand what this doctrine is, but they haven't given consent to it fully yet. Okay. A formal heretic is someone who um, looks at the error and gives full and knowledgeable consent that it's wrong. And the, the standard for the church is, so it's in the will, he knows that he knows that it's false. Sorry. And yet he, but he also wills it fully. Not just partially, because you may not fully, until you fully do it, you don't corrupt the virtue of faith. Okay. So once he knows that any, that, so the formal heretic is someone who knows this fully. <clears throat> and the church's standard for determining that, that there's full consent, the church concedes, or the theologians concede, once a person gives full consent to this, boom, he has lost his faith and is therefore outside the church. Because he no longer has the faith which keeps him in union with the church. Okay. So um, then this, but the, the standard they use is obstinacy. This is why it takes forever for a guy to get condemned as a formal heretic. Because the church has to say, hey, you know, you're teaching something that's erroneous. You know, what say you in this, right? So then the guy says, you know, uh, I think dogs go to heaven too, right? And I, and I believe that dogs go to heaven. So, and then they'll write back, are you aware of the fact that this teaching has been condemned by such and such and such? <clears throat> and then if he writes back and says, no, I didn't know that, I'm, I'm sorry, I won't do it, then they don't condemn him as a formal heretic. And as long as if he brings his thinking in congruity with this, even if he has a hard time seeing it, he can still function as a Catholic if he doesn't give full consent and he's, still and he's trying to work towards overcoming his error. Whereas if he says, yeah, I know what you teach, you know, but I still think that dogs go to heaven, okay? And that dogs have immortal souls too, right? Okay, they're people too. Okay, so that's the, the obstinacy is, and, and so they have to, because the obstinacy shows that the consent is full consent. That's why it takes forever to get these guys out. The problem is, is that a lot of times the church doesn't even go through that process anymore. They still do on occasion. Once in a while, you'll find out some priest got booted out or silenced or what have you. So 
And so people, you know, back in when I was in the um, seminary before I joined the fraternity, they're just like, don't use the word heretic. People aren't heretics. You know, like, yeah, they are. Look, either you believe what the church believes or you don't. It's called the principle of excluded middle. Either you do or you don't. You know, there's not a middle. But, um, but there, you know, people are so mealy-mouthed and emotionally soft that any time you tell somebody, look, you're a heretic and you need to do something, they're like, uh, uh, I can't believe he said that. I mean, it's, it's literally like using the N-word to describe somebody. Mm-hmm. It's on that level in the church. Mm-hmm. So, yes? Ignorance, how does that play into this? So with ignorance, what happens is that the person might think about, he might give assent to something that's contrary to theirs, but he, because he doesn't know what the church actually teaches. So, and obviously the ignorance can be culpable, but that culpability doesn't make him a heretic. <laughs> it just makes, well, I mean, it makes him a material heretic, not a formal heretic. And you don't, you see the church, uh, I'm not sure how wise it is. They've dro- kind of dropped using this term material heretic of those people who they just use, they, they say he's in error. And the reason I think they're doing that is just because as soon as you say material heretic, I, I know this from myself. Anytime you make a qualification, even on like a conference or something like that, what happens is, is people hear, they truncate this and they only hear heretic, right? So a lot of, and I think that's why the church has been talking this way. And part of it is too, is, is I think they think that almost everybody's in error and that nobody really understands it. But I, I, I don't think the threshold is that high as they want to make it to be either. So although the obstinacy is the one that the church really looks for. And this is why, you, you, you know, <laughs> you can say, you know, uh, Bishop so-and-so is a heretic. You can say that, right? If, if you're, by that you mean material heretic, but you should be specific. And people say, no, he's a formal heretic. Yeah, that, well, you don't know that. You don't know the interior life, and that's why the church goes through a process to make sure that you, you basically reveal your will, will in the process. Then, it, then it's up to the then it's up to the person superior to excommunicate them. They're already excommunicated. Yeah, that's yeah. Well, I should say, uh, they are already cut off uh, invisibly from the church. They're not in the state of grace. They don't have the virtue of faith. So they're technically speaking not members of the church, even though visibly they look like they are. So the excommunication is the visible cutting off. So their souls are, are literally in grave danger. That's right. And that's why they used to excommunicate people, not because it was like, we'll get you, Chucky, you know. It was, you know, you're, we're going to spank you here, and this is how we're going to spank you. We're going to cut you off, you know, go to your room is basically what the church is saying. Go to your room and think about this. You know, if you want to come back and you're willing to change, then, you know, what should we do to the kid? If you want to get your act together, you can come back and be with civilized people. But until then, you can't. So, yeah. Then it goes to the next superior. Well, I'm getting ahead of people under him because he's maybe charismatic or seems to know what he's talking about. If they accept what he's teaching, are they necessarily heretics? Or would that be a case of where they don't have sufficient knowledge? They don't have sufficient knowledge. Yeah. You know, you were saying, um, if you're wondering how God is thinking, just look at reality. Well, yeah. Look at how, how more severe penance was in, say, in the Middle Ages, for example, when the church was very new and then right. very uh, more strict. Right. And 
comparing it to what it is today, is it, is it either God's mercy making it more easily accessible for people who are very sinful today? Because sin is so easily accessible now. All you got to really do is just you, you have it. Turn on the sin. internet. Yes, technology. Turn on the computer. It's not, I mean, back in the day, you had to kind of go find someone, go to a bar, go to a right, right, right. stuff. So now it's just so easy. So it's more easy. It's easier to just access a confession and know the type and go look it up. Okay, confession at this time, the priest gives you penance. Right. You know, and even plenary indulgence, you go to communion, you do principal. It's not it's not the sackcloth thing going out in the public and you know, like it used to be or whatever, I guess. And there's no more hardcore Linton practices that are required by the church when it used to be back in right. in that time also. For example, after Vatican II a lot of things were taken away. They, you didn't have to do them, like eating meat on Fridays is no longer a mortal sin, it's a venial. Right. So is that is that God depriving mankind of extra graces to get to heaven or it could it also be a sort of a mix of he's making it more merciful for men who are so much more easier to fall now I mean, what do you see that as? Uh, I don't think those are necessarily exclusive okay. if that makes sense I think it's a bit of both I think that the um, I think God's cutting us more slack now because people are so soft but um, I also think that um, in the past you know when you were given a penance for confession it was considered to be done. Um, you, 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 you basically, you, if you, like for example, if you committed adultery, it was a pretty severe penance. And their basic attitude was, you should pay for this. And part of it is, uh, is to make reparation to God, but then also to basically remove any possibility that you would have to spend in time in purgatory. Because by doing all this penance, you're going to spend less time in purgatory, right? As a matter of justice. So, um, and that's actually one of the things. So, like, when you get to the indulgences, I'll give you an idea of how people's understanding of this has changed. When you get to indulgences, Paul VI changes indulgences. It used to be that, you know, you get look in these old prayer books and it says 100 days. And people say, oh, that means 100 days in purgatory. That's not what that means. It means doing 100 days of prayer and fasting. That's what that means. It has the same amount of merit. All I got to do is say this prayer and the church herself adds to it through the spiritual treasury that same efficacy of that. Paul VI simply said, unless it's plenary, it's just if you say one Hail Mary, the church will add a Hail Mary. It's called parsley. It's a gargantuan problem. But it tells you that it, it's, a, it's a lack of understanding of the... Of, you know, God's justice is exacting. Yeah, he's, he's absolutely merciful, but he's also absolutely just. And so there is, he even says in Matthew 5, 26, you know, he'll throw you in jail until you pay the last farthing. I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. And by his, why is it that God wants this? For our own sake of being purified so that we're perfect so that we can be with him without anything on our conscience. Okay, another question. Yeah. Yes. So, um, in these times, I've noticed that there are people that have come to me that have wanted to come into the church. Yeah. They bred themselves to the church. They're Protestant. But then they see, um, they see problems. They see problems with encyclicals coming out that contradict yeah. things that they've read. They see problems with deacons or pastors telling them things that are contrary to things that are right. read. How do you, so they, in the end, they say, this must not be the time to come in. They're nervous. They're not sure what is true. 
if what they've read is true or yeah. what what is being said today through the through the, the uh, yeah. through the Holy Father and through bishops and, and priests. Right. So how do you approach that with people? What would you recommend? Um well my basic attitude is let's just say for the sake of argument that our boat is sinking at least it's still sinking yours is already sunk so you might as well get into the one and be at least out of the water for a while but the second component but that's actually not the the the, the we know that our boat won't sink right because he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it which means all of these all those things that are necessary for salvation, those, all those things that are essential to the church teaching will never change. And that's why the church put the restrictions on papal infallibility. They said he's only infallible when he speaks under these conditions. Not outside that, we don't have any guarantee. So we know there are certain things that the church has infallibly proposed, and you, they say you must believe this in order to be saved. If he, acts, if he talks contrary to that, you just don't pay attention to it. In other words, what you have to, and this is why the tradition is becoming more and more uh, important. You know, one of the things that's so interesting about COVID is one of the priests, and the dean in our, um, in our diet that, that we are in, because we, we, when we moved, we didn't know which deanery we were in, and we find out which deanery we were in, so we invited the dean down, and um, he's a really good priest, a really good priest, actually. I think he's a guy striving for holiness. And he, he said, he said, you know, I think that the church has gone through a woke period. And what he said by that, he said, is that people are waking up that the tradition is the way to go. And the way that I th- and I said, yeah, I think part of it had to do with the fact that, not in that diocese, because in that diocese, the priest bent over backwards to try and provide the way they could, the best they could, uh, at least in their own mind. So I, I think that I, it was quite admirable with some of the stories that the priest was telling us. But uh, in a lot of dioceses, they, <laughs> they weren't providing for the people at all. And it was the traditional priests who were trying to provide for them. And so people began to realize there's something here that isn't there. And so there is a certain sense in which it's true that when we see people acting morally and uprightly or trying to do the, the good, that we are attracted to that. And when they're not, we're not. But in relationship to the church, you have to tell people, look it, the church, when, the, when we say that the church is holy, we're talking about it's holy in its sacraments. It's holy in it, the fact that it's always trying to sanctify people. It's holy in its doctrine. It does not mean that everybody in the church is holy. And it also means that, um, so in, also in relationship to the Pope, the, it's under a certain set of conditions, or even with the bishops, there's a certain set of conditions where they can say stuff that's false. You, and this is the real problem, is you just tell people, look it, come in, the teachings of the church haven't changed. They're not going to change. What you're attracted to is here. You just have, we've got to get you to a place where you can uh, follow them and live them, is the real issue. Um, and I think that uh, that's one of the real reasons. I mean, I think that the number of the church has really missed it uh, has a, is in a situation of a missed opportunity. Can you imagine if the church had the same solidity that it had in the fifties now? The conversion rate would be off the charts. We would, we would be, we would have, yeah, actually, we would have already been a Catholic nation, exactly. And that's actually one of the reasons why the Protestants actually set out to destroy the Catholic Church by means of contraception. But anyway, so uh, that all being said, um, I think that the main thing you have to do is just tell them, 
look, what you're looking for is still here. Let's just get you where you can live it and see it. And the other thing is we live in a time when a person, you've heard me say this, I think, people have to have one of two things or you're just going to end up a heretic. It's basically like if all of a sudden poisonous fumes started pumping into this room, you either got to get out of the room or you've got to have a mask. One of the two. Otherwise, you're going down for the count. Well, in the Catholic Church, modernism is this toxic fume in the church. <clears throat> and it's so thick. It's so thick that there is absolutely no way you're not going to succumb to this stuff unless you have one of two things. Either you have an extraordinary grace, which is very rare. It's very rare. I've only seen it in a handful of people. Or... I mean, some people can have sensitivities, but they very often fall into error. But they can have, they, you know, you can, they have sensitivities that are in the right direction. And so, so you know, you'll, like, I, I have a relative that just generally knows that when they hear something, like, that's just not right. So they have a sense of spodanium, right? That's not that common today. People like to think they have it, but it's not that common. Or you have to have an enormous amount of philosophical and theological knowledge to know exactly what the truth is and where the boundaries are. Otherwise, you're just going to get sucked into it. And I think that's the real... That's why I keep telling Catholics, like, you can't rest on your laurels. You've got to keep reading and keep reading. You know? So, and it's not enough. It's not enough. You know, people say, well, Father, I'll just listen to you. Yeah, that's not a good idea. I am not an authority. You know, okay, so I teach a lot of stuff, but I'm, all I'm doing is passing on what the saints have said. You have to go back and read what the church has taught. You have to go back and read its documents, its catechisms, the saints, their teachings. You follow them, not me. Okay. If I'm canonized, then you can do it. But that's unlikely, by the way. All right. Okay. I have one question about uh, salvation and how rare it is for people um, outside the Catholic Church, which would include following the way yeah. Right. Well, what it comes down to is when I think about relatives who I loved and who have died, and I'm not sure they weren't they weren't practicing. They mm -hmm. didn't receive absolution, you know, didn't go to confession. Right. Um, the fact that I'm very moved to still pray for them. Mm -hmm. Is that unreasonable or because um, I guess it's just a, a, a belief in God's mercy right. that there would still be hope? Yeah. Even well, there's not, okay, you can't. There wasn't anything exterior. Right. Well, you can't have reasonable hope in thinking, I think the person made it. But you can hope in the sense of, well, God is merciful. Let's just pray that his mercy found its fulfillment. And we're going to pray for the repose of this person. The beauty of the church's teaching on the spiritual treasury is if you, if you pray for this person, they ended up in hell. That's, if your prayers are wasted, it goes to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, the, uh, but you, I, the church basically says you can pray for anybody living or dead. Now, obviously, there's certain, and you can offer masses for anybody living or dead, right? Obviously, you're going to use a little bit of prudence. I wouldn't be praying for the salvation of Hitler, for example, you know, um, or, or, the, or that Hitler gets out of purgatory. 
right? I wouldn't be doing that. That's just a waste of your prayers. I mean, it's still going to go into spiritual treasury, so there's no waste in the strict sense. So, but you can pray for anybody living or dead. And so if a person feels moved to do that, I think you should do it, as long as it's reasonable. So, so in doing these prayers, does that give them the grace of final perseverance? Hold on just a second. What's that? So in praying for these people, is that giving them the grace maybe of final perseverance? Well, here's the thing, and I usually don't talk too much about this, but because God stands outside of time and he sees the totality of everything that ever happened and ever will happen, even for all eternity, he sees it right now, all of it, right? That means that if you pray for a person now who died in the past, if you can pray for them now and ask God to retroactively apply the merits of the grace backwards, he'll see that and he can apply it. It will have been applied at that time, in our time. So you can do that. I, I, sometimes I'll recommend that to people that, you know, especially if they're really suffering from somebody who committed suicide, pray to God and ask him to have given that person a grace of final penitence. So, um, and so that, that can still be done. So, yeah, you can do that. Um, or if they manage to be saved, you can just pray that their soul is released from purgatory. I actually did have... Um, At least, I mean, we don't have moral certitude about this, but it seems pretty consistent. I had one case where the guy that was possessing, and that's a whole other question about whether human beings who have been damned can possess, but that's what it appeared to be. And uh, he treated his wife terribly, and but we figured we figured out that she managed to be saved. So we would ask her to come down and stand there and give testimony against him. Oh. sour look on that guy's face it was unbelievable and um, at one point I said I told him apologize to your wife for the way you treated her in this life and he just looks at me and he says I'll do it but I'm never going to mean it and I'm like actually you're right you can't mean it <laughs> because your will is fixed in evil but do it anyway right so and he did it and he was just torqued off that he had to do it of course but this but she wasn't Catholic which was kind of interesting so there's some indication that she was saved, some. But uh, so the point being is, is that, uh, but I don't think those are too common, right? That all being said, I think that, yeah, you can pray for the, for the salvation of their souls. And, or, or you can just ask God, give them, have them given them the grace that they could be saved. Or, and if they're in purgatory, you know, release them from purgatory. So, and we never know what graces God gives to people in the end. We really don't know because that whole incident of the cure of ours and the guy who committed suicide, and we've heard that one, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. So if, you know, the fact that um, he was made knowledgeable that the guy had um, been given the grace of final penitence as he's plunging down from the bridge, that, and he accepted it, tells us that until the person's dead, there's still a possibility. So, okay. If you'll kneel, I'll give you a blessing. Benedictio Deo Omnipotentis Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti Supervos et Semper. Amen.